Greetings, folks, and welcome to The Eclectic Humanist, episode 16, Remembrance Day. Today, rather than do anything political, in the spirit of the occasion, I'm simply going to do some readings of works written by soldiers who served on the Western Front in the First World War. There are 364 days of the year when I think it's perfectly appropriate to engage in politics, but this is the one exception. Today, I think it's simply important to look at the sacrifices in terms of both life and physical and mental health made by those who, serving whatever cause, and whether voluntarily or involuntarily, have put themselves at risk in armed combat. Now, to avoid the temptation to editorialize overly much, which is something to which I regularly fall victim, I will simply be reading to you a selection of poetry and prose produced by men who served on the Western Front in the First World War. And I'm sticking to that relatively narrow window because, of course, November the 11th marks the end of that conflict, a war that I still see as the defining conflict of the modern era. And when it comes to the experience of combat, there is simply no one who can speak with authority on that other than someone who has been through it. And I have not. In terms of selection, I'm simply choosing a modest selection of works that I find particularly moving and that have meant something to me over the years. Somebody else would probably choose a different selection. I hope this one gives you some insight and some understanding and some empathy regarding the experience, the trauma, and the reality of life and death in the trenches. Perhaps I should say as well that the selections I'll be giving you have already been recorded, and I'll simply be trying to fit them into an order that makes sense to me as we move through this episode. I hope this works for you, and while I won't say I hope you enjoy these, I do hope that you are able to connect with at least some of them. In terms of structure, we'll start with some poetry from soldiers serving with the Allied forces on the Western Front, then we'll shift to a reading of a chapter from Eric Maria Remark's novel All Quiet on the Western Front. Remark was a German infantryman. And then we'll wrap up again by returning to some poetry from the Allied lines. So, here we go. Dawn on the Somme by Robert Nichols Last night rain fell over the scarred plateau, and now from the dark horizon dazzling flies arrow on fire-plumed arrow to the skies shot from the bright arc of Apollo's bow, and from the wild and writhen waste below, from flashing pools and mounds lit one by one, oh, is it mist, or are these companies of mourning heroes who arise, arise with thrusting arms, with limbs and hair aglow, toward the risen god, upon whose brow burns the cold laurel of all victories, hero and hero's god, the invincible sun. Break of Day in the Trenches by Isaac Rosenberg The darkness crumbles away. It is the same old druid time as ever. Only a live thing leaps my hand, a queer sardonic rat, as I pull the parapet's poppy to stick behind my ear. Droll rat, they would shoot you if they knew your cosmopolitan sympathies. Now you have touched this English hand, you will do the same to a German soon, no doubt, if it be your pleasure to cross the sleeping green between. 
It seems you inwardly grin as you pass strong eyes, fine limbs, haughty athletes, less chanced than you for life, bonds to the whims of murder, sprawled in the bowels of the earth, the torn fields of France. What do you see in our eyes, in the shrieking iron and flame hurled through still heavens? What quaver, what hearts aghast? Poppies, whose roots are in men's veins, drop, and are ever dropping. But mine in my ear is safe, just a little white with the dust. Anthem for Doomed Youth by Wilfred Owen What passing bells for these who die as cattle? Only the monstrous anger of the guns. Only the stuttering rifles' rapid rattle can patter out their hasty orisons. No mockeries now for them, no prayers, nor bells. Nor any voice of mourning save the choirs, the shrill, demented choirs of wailing shells, and bugles calling for them from sad shires. What candles may be held to speed them all? Not in the hands of boys, but in their eyes, shall shine the holy glimmers of goodbyes. The pallor of girls' brows shall be their pall. Their flowers the tenderness of patient minds, and each slow dusk a drawing down of blinds. Futility by Wilfred Owen Move him into the sun. Gently its touch awoke him once, at home whispering of fields half-sown. Always it woke him, even in France, until this morning and this snow. If anything might rouse him now, the kind old sun will know. Think how it wakes the seeds, woke the clays of a cold star. Our limbs, so dear achieved, our sides, full-nerved, still warm, too hard to stir. Was it for this the clay grew tall? Oh, what made fatuous sunbeams toil to break earth's sleep at all? Strange Meeting by Wilfred Owen It seemed that out of battle I escaped, down some profound dull tunnel long since scooped through granites which titanic wars had groined. Yet also there encumbered sleepers groaned, too fast in thought or death to be bestirred. Then, as I probed them, one sprang up and stared with piteous recognition in fixed eyes, lifting distressful hands as if to bless and by his smile I knew that sullen hall. By his dead smile I knew we stood in hell. With a thousand fears that vision's face was grained, yet no blood reached there from the upper ground, and no guns thumped or down the flues made moan. Strange friend, I said, here is no cause to mourn. None, said that other, save the undone years, the hopelessness. Whatever hope is yours was my life also. I went hunting wild after the wildest beauty in the world, which lies not calm in eyes or braided hair, but mocks the steady running of the hour, and if it grieves, grieves richlier than here. For by my glee might many men have laughed, and of my weeping something had been left, which must die now. I mean the truth untold, the pity of war, the pity war distilled. Now men will go content with what we spoiled, or discontent boil bloody and be spilled. They will be swift with swiftness of the tigress. None will break ranks, though nations trek from progress. Courage was mine, and I had mystery. Wisdom was mine, and I had mastery. 
to miss the march of this retreating world into vain citadels that are not walled. Then, when much blood had clogged their chariot wheels, I would go up and wash them from sweet wells, even with truths that lie too deep for taint. I would have poured my spirit without stint, but not through wounds, not on the cess of war. Foreheads of men have bled where no wounds were. I am the enemy you killed, my friend. I knew you in this dark, for so you frowned yesterday through me as you jabbed and killed. I parried, but my hands were loath and cold. Let us sleep now. Attack by Siegfried Sassoon At dawn the ridge emerges massed and dun in the wild purple of the glowering sun, smoldering through spouts of drifting smoke that shroud the menacing scarred slope, and, one by one, tanks creep and topple forward to the wire. The barrage roars and lifts, then, clumsily bowed with bombs and guns and shovels and battle gear, men jostle and climb too, meet the bristling fire. Lines of gray, muttering faces masked with fear, they leave their trenches going over the top, while time ticks blank and busy on their wrists, and hope, with furtive eyes and grappling fists, flounders in the mud. Oh, Jesus, make it stop. Counterattack by Siegfried Sassoon We'd gained our first objective hours before, while dawn broke like a face with blinking eyes, pallid, unshaven and thirsty, blind with smoke. Things seemed all right at first. We held their line, with bombers posted, Lewis guns well placed, and clink of shovels deepening the shallow trench. The place was rotten with dead. Green clumsy legs, high-booted, sprawled and groveled along the saps and trunks, face downward in the sucking mud, wallowed like trodden sandbags loosely filled and naked sodden buttocks, mats of hair, bulged, clotted heads slept in the plastering slime, and then the rain began, the jolly old rain. A young soldier knelt against the bank, staring across the morning blear with fog. He wondered when the Alamans would get busy, and then, of course, they started with five nines, traversing sure as fate and never a dud. Mute in the clamor of shells, he watched them burst, spouting dark earth and wire with gusts from hell, while posturing giants dissolved in drifts of smoke. He crouched and flinched, dizzy with galloping fear, sick for escape, loathing the strangled horror and butchered frantic gestures of the dead. An officer came blundering down the trench. Stand to and man the fire step. On he went, gasping and bawling. Fire step! Counterattack! Then the haze lifted, bombing on the right down the old sap, machine guns on the left, and stumbling figures looming out in front. Oh Christ, they're coming at us! Bullets spat, and he remembered the rifle, rapid fire, and started blazing wildly. Then a bang, crumpled and spun him sideways, knocked him out to grunt and wiggle. None heeded him. He choked and fought the flapping veils of smothering gloom, lost in a blurred confusion of yells and groans. Down and down and down he sank and drowned, bleeding to death. The counterattack had failed. The Deathbed by Siegfried Sassoon 
He drowsed and was aware of silence heaped round him, unshaken as the steadfast walls, aqueous like floating rays of amber light, soaring and quivering in the wings of sleep. Silence and safety, and his mortal shore lipped by the inward moonless waves of death. Someone was holding water to his mouth. He swallowed, unresisting, moaned and dropped through crimson gloom to darkness, and forgot the opiate throb and ache that was his wound. Water, calm, sliding green above the weir. Water, a sky-lit alley for his boat, bird-voiced and bordered with reflected flowers, and shaken hues of summer drifting down. He dipped contented oars and sighed and slept. Night, with a gust of wind, was in the ward, blowing the curtain to a gummering curve. Night. He was blind. He could not see the stars glinting among the wraiths of wandering cloud. Queer blots of color, purple, scarlet, green, flickered and faded in his drowning eyes. Rain. He could hear it rustling through the dark. Fragrance and passionless music woven as one. Warm rain on drooping roses pattering showers that soaked the woods, not the harsh rain that sweeps behind the thunder, but a trickling peace, gently and slowly washing life away. He stirred, shifting his body. Then the pain leapt like a prowling beast and gripped and tore his groping dreams with grinding claws and fangs. But someone was beside him. Soon he lay, shuddering because that evil thing had passed, and death, who'd stepped toward him, paused and stared. Light many lamps and gather round his bed. Lend him your eyes, warm blood, and will to live. Speak to him, rouse him. You may save him yet, he's young, he hated war. How should he die when cruel old campaigners win safe through? But death replied, I choose him. So he went, and there was silence in the summer night, silence and safety, and the veils of sleep, then, far away, the thudding of the guns. The following excerpt is chapter six of Eric Maria Remark's wonderful novel, All Quiet on the Western Front. Remark was a soldier in the German infantry, who saw service on the Western Front and was in fact wounded there, I believe at Verdun, in 1916. Personally, I think All Quiet on the Western Front is quite possibly the greatest war novel ever written. Chapter 6 picks up where the main characters, all high school friends who enlisted together, begin hearing rumors of an offensive brewing. I'll say nothing else and just let the narrative speak for itself. There are rumors of an offensive. We go up to the front two days earlier than usual. On the way, we pass a shelled schoolhouse. Stacked up against its longer side is a double wall of yellow, unpolished, brand-new coffins. They still smell of resin and pine and the forest. There are at least a hundred. That's a good preparation for the offensive, says Mueller, astonished. There for us, growls Dietering. Don't talk rot, says Cat to him angrily. You be thankful if you get so much as a coffin, grins Chodden. They'll slip you a waterproof sheet for your old Aunt Sally of a carcass. The others jest too. Unpleasant jests, but what else can a man do? The coffins really are for us. The organization surpasses itself in that kind of thing. Ahead of us everything is shimmering. 
the first light we try to get our bearings. When it is fairly quiet, we can hear the transports behind the enemy lines rolling ceaselessly until dawn. Cat says that they do not go back, but are bringing up troops, troops, munitions, and guns. The English artillery has been strengthened, that we can detect at once. There are at least four more batteries of nine-inch guns to the right of the farm, and behind the poplars they have put in trench mortars. Besides these, they have brought up a number of those little French beasts with instantaneous fuses. We are now in low spirits. After we've been in the dugouts two hours, our own shells begin to fall in the trench. This is the third time in four weeks. If it were simply a mistake in aim, no one would say anything, but the truth is that the barrels are worn out. The shots are often so uncertain that they land within our own lines. Tonight, two of our men were wounded by them. The front is a cage in which we must await fearfully whatever may happen. We lie under the network of arching shells and live in a suspense of uncertainty. Over us, chance hovers. If a shot comes, we can duck, that's all. We neither know nor can determine where it will fall. It is this chance that makes us indifferent. A few months ago I was sitting in a dugout playing scat. After a while I stood up and went to visit some friends in another dugout. On my return, nothing more was to be seen of the first one. It had been blown to pieces by a direct hit. I went back to the second and arrived just in time to lend a hand in digging it out. In the interval, it had been buried. It is just as much a matter of chance that I am still alive, that I might have been hit. In a bomb-proof dugout, I may be smashed to atoms, and in the open, I may survive ten hours' bombardment unscathed. No soldier outlives a thousand chances, but every soldier believes in chance and trusts his luck. We must look out for our bread. The rats have become much more numerous lately because the trenches are no longer in good condition. Dietering says it's a sure sign of a coming bombardment. The rats here are particularly repulsive. They are so fat, the kind we call corpse rats. They have shocking, evil, naked faces, and it is nauseating to see their long, nude tails. They seem to be mighty hungry. Almost every man has had his bread gnawed. Crop wrapped his in a waterproof sheet and put it under his head, but he cannot sleep because they run over his face to get at it. Dietering meant to outwit them. He fastened a thin wire to the roof and suspended his bread from it. During the night, when he switched on his pocket torch, she saw the wire swinging to and fro. On the bread was riding a fat rat. At last we put a stop to it. We cannot afford to throw the bread away, because then we should have nothing left to eat in the morning. So we carefully cut off the bits of bread that the animals have gnawed. The slices we cut off are heaped together in the middle of the floor. Each man takes out his spade and lies down, prepared to strike. Dietering, Crop, and Cat hold their pocket torches ready. After a few minutes we hear the first shuffling and tugging. It grows. Now it is the sound of many little feet. Then the torches switch on, and every man strikes at the heap, which scatters with a rush. The result is good. We toss the bits of rat over the parapet, and again lie in wait. Several times we repeat the process. At last the beasts get wise to it, or perhaps they have scented the blood. They return no more. Nevertheless, before morning the remainder of the bread on the floor has been carried off. In the adjoining sector they attacked two large cats and a dog, bit them to death, and devoured them. Next day there was an issue of Edomer cheese. 
Each man gets almost a quarter of a cheese in one way that is all to the good for Edomer is tasty, but in another way it's vile because the fat red balls have long been a sign of a bad time coming. Our forebodings increase as rum is served out. We drink it, of course, but we are not greatly comforted. During the day we loaf about and make war on the rats. Ammunition and hand grenades become more plentiful. We overhaul the bayonets, that is to say the ones that have a saw on the blunt edge. If the fellows over there catch a man with one of those, he's killed at sight. In the next sector some of our men were found whose noses were cut off and their eyes poked out with their own saw bayonets. Their mouths and noses were stuffed with sawdust so that they suffocated. Some of the recruits have bayonets of this sort. We take them away and give them the ordinary kind. But the bayonet has practically lost its importance. It is usually the fashion now to charge with bombs and spades only. The sharpened spade is a more handy and many-sided weapon. Not only can it be used for jabbing a man under the chin, but it's much better for striking with because of its greater weight. And if one hits between the neck and shoulder, it easily cleaves as far down as the chest. The bayonet frequently jams on the thrust, and then a man has to kick hard on the other fellow's belly to pull it out again, and in the interval he may easily get one himself, and what's more, the blade often gets broken off. At night they send over gas. We expect the attack to follow and lie with our masks on, ready to tear them off as soon as the first shadow appears. Dawn approaches without anything happening, only the everlasting, nerve-wracking roll behind the enemy lines, trains, trains, lorries, lorries. But what are they concentrating? Our artillery fires on it continually, but still it does not cease. We have tired faces and avoid each other's eyes. It'll be like the psalm, says Cat gloomily. There we were shelled steadily for seven days and nights. Cat has lost all his fun since we have been here, which is bad, for Cat's an old front hog and can smell what's coming. Only Chodden seems pleased with the good rations and rum. He thinks we might even get back to rest without anything happening at all. It almost looks like it. Day after day passes. At night, I squat in the listening post. Above me, the rockets and parachute lights shoot up and float down again. I'm cautious and tense. My heart thumps. My eyes turn again and again to the luminous dial of my watch. The hands will not budge. Sleep hangs on my eyelids. I work my toes and my boots in order to keep awake. Nothing happens till I am relieved. Only the everlasting rolling over there. Gradually, we grow calmer and play scat and poker continually. Perhaps we'll be lucky. All day the sky is hung with observation balloons. There is a rumor that the enemy are going to put tanks over and use low-flying planes for the attack. But that interests us less than what we hear of the new flamethrowers. We wake up in the middle of the night. The earth booms. Heavy fire is falling on us. We crouch into corners. We distinguish shells of every caliber. Each man lays hold of his things and looks again every minute to reassure himself that they are still there. The dugout heaves. The night roars and flashes. We look at each other in the momentary flashes of light and with pale faces and pressed lips shake our heads. Every man is aware of the heavy shells tearing down the parapet rooting up the embankment and demolishing the upper layers of concrete. When a shell lands in the trench, we note how the hollow, furious blast is like a blow from a paw of a raging beast of prey. 
Already by morning a few of the recruits are green and vomiting. They are too inexperienced. Slowly the gray light trickles into the post and pales the flashes of the shells. Morning has come. The explosion of mines mingles with the gunfire. That is the most demented convulsion of all. The whole region where they go up becomes one grave. The reliefs go out. The observers stagger in, covered with dirt and trembling. One lies down in the silence in the corner and eats. The other, an older man of the new draft, sobs. Twice he has been flung over the parapet by the blast of the explosions without getting any more than shell shock. The recruits are eyeing him. We must watch them. These things are catching. Already some lips begin to quiver. It's good that it's growing daylight. Perhaps the attack will come before noon. The bombardment does not diminish. It's falling in the rear, too, as far as one can see spout fountains of mud and iron. A wide belt is being raked. The attack does not come, but the bombardment continues. We are gradually benumbed. Hardly a man speaks. We cannot make ourselves understood. Our trench is almost gone. At many places it's only eighteen inches high. It is broken by holes and craters and mountains of earth. A shell lands square in front of our post. At once it is dark. We are buried and must dig ourselves out. After an hour the entrance is clear again, and we are calmer because we have had something to do. Our company commander scrambles in and reports two dugouts are gone. The recruits calm themselves when they see him. He says that an attempt will be made to bring food this evening. That sounds reassuring. No one has thought of this except Chaden. Now the outside world seems to draw a little nearer. If food can be brought up, think the recruits, then it can't really be so bad. We do not disabuse them. We know that food is as important as ammunition, and only for that reason must it be brought up. But it miscarries. A second party goes out, and it also turns back. Finally, Cat tries, and even he reappears without accomplishing anything. No one gets through. Not even a fly is small enough to get through such a barrage. We pull in our belts tighter and chew every mouthful three times as long. Still, the food does not last out. We are damnably hungry. I take out a scrap of bread, eat the white, and put the crust back in my knapsack. From time to time, I nibble at it. The night is unbearable. We cannot sleep, but stare ahead of us and doze. Chodden regrets that we wasted the gnawed pieces of bread on the rats. We would gladly have them again to eat now. We are short of water, too, but not seriously yet. Towards morning, while it's still dark, there is some excitement. Through the entrance rushes a swarm of fleeing rats that try to storm the walls. Torches light up the confusion. Everyone yells and curses and slaughters. The madness and despair of many hours unload itself in this outburst. Faces are distorted. Arms strike out. The beasts scream. We just stop in time to avoid attacking one another. The onslaught has exhausted us all. We lie down to wait again. It's a marvel that our post has had no casualties so far. It is one of the less deep dugouts. A corporal creeps in. He has a loaf of bread with him. Three people have had luck to get through during the night and bring some provisions. They say the bombardment extends undiminished as far as the artillery lines. It's a mystery where the enemy gets all his shells. We wait and wait. By midday, what I expected happens. One of the recruits has a fit. I must have been watching him for a long time, grinding his teeth and opening and shutting his fists. These hunted, protruding eyes, we know them all too well. 
During the last few hours, he has had merely the appearance of calm. He had collapsed like a rotten tree. Now he stands up, stealthily creeps across the floor, hesitates a moment, and then glides toward the door. I intercept him and say, Where are you going? I'll be back in a minute, he says, and tries to push past me. Wait a bit, the shelling will stop soon. He listens for a moment, and his eyes become clear. Then again, he has the glowering eyes of a mad dog. He is silent. He shoves me aside. One minute, lad, I say. Cat notices. Just as the recruit shakes me off, Cat jumps in, and we hold him. Then he begins to rave. Leave me alone. Let me out. I will go out. He won't listen to anything, and hits out. His mouth is wet and pours out words, half-choked, meaningless words. It is a case of claustrophobia. He feels as though he's suffocating here and wants to get out at any price. If we let him, he would go and run everywhere regardless of cover. He's not the first. Though he raves and his eyes roll, it can't be helped. We have to give him a hiding to bring him to his senses. We do it quickly and mercilessly, and at last he sits down quietly. The others have turned pale. Let's hope it deters them. This bombardment is too much for the poor devils. They have been sent straight from the recruiting depot into a barrage that is enough to turn an old soldier's hair gray. After this affair, the sticky, close atmosphere works more than ever on our nerves. We sit as if in our graves, waiting only to be closed in. Suddenly, it howls and flashes terrifically. The dugout cracks in all its joints, under a direct hit. Fortunately, only a light one that the concrete blocks are able to withstand. It rings metallically. The walls reel, rifles, helmets, earth, mud, and dust fly everywhere. Sulfur fumes pour in. If we were in one of those light dugouts that they've been building lately instead of this deeper one, none of us would be alive. But the effect is bad enough even so. The recruit starts to rave again, and two others follow suit. One jumps up and rushes out. We're having trouble with the other two. I start after the one who escapes and wonder whether to shoot him in the leg. Then it shrieks again. I fling myself down, and when I stand up, the wall of the trench is plastered with smoking splinters, lumps of flesh, and bits of uniform. I scramble back. The first recruit seems actually to have gone insane. He butts his head against the wall like a goat. We must try tonight to take him to the rear. Meanwhile, we bind him, but in such a way that in case of attack, he can be released at once. Cat suggests a game of scat. It's easier when a man has something to do, but it's no use. We listen for every explosion that comes close, miscount the tricks, and fail to follow suit. We have to give it up. We sit as though in a boiler that is being belabored from without on all sides. Night again. We are deadened by the strain. A deadly tension that scrapes along one's spine like a gapped knife. Our legs refuse to move. Our hands tremble. Our bodies are thin skin stretched painfully over repressed madness, over an almost irresistible bursting roar. We have neither flesh nor muscles any longer. We dare not look at one another for fear of some incalculable thing. So we shut our teeth. It will end. It will end. Perhaps we will come through. Suddenly the near explosions cease. The shelling continues, but it has lifted and falls behind us. Our trench is free. We seize the hand grenades, pitch them out in front of the dugout, and jump after them. The bombardment is stopped, and a heavy barrage now falls behind us. The attack has come. No one would believe 
that in this howling waste there could still be men, but steel helmets now appear on all sides out of the trench, and fifty yards from us a machine gun is already in position and barking. The wire entanglements are torn to pieces, yet they offer some obstacle. We see the stormtroops coming. Our artillery opens fire, machine guns rattle, rifles crack. The charge works its way across. High and crop begin with the hand grenades. They throw as fast as they can. Others pass them, the handles with the strings already pulled. High throws 75 yards, crop 60. It has been measured. The distance is important. The enemy, as they run, cannot do much before they're within 40 yards. We recognize the smooth, distorted faces, the helmets. They are French. They have already suffered heavily when they reach the remnants of the barbed wire entanglements. A whole line has gone down before our machine guns. Then we have a lot of stoppages, and they come nearer. I see one of them, his face upturned, fall into a wire cradle. His body collapses, his hands remain suspended as though he were praying. Then his body drops clean away, and only his hands, with the stumps of his arms shot off, now hang on the wire. The moment we are about to retreat, three faces rise up from the ground in front of us. Under one of the helmets, a dark pointed beard and two eyes that are fastened on me. I raise my hand, but I cannot throw into those strange eyes. For one moment, the whole slaughter whirls like a circus around me, and these two eyes alone are motionless. Then the head rises, a hand, a movement, and my hand grenade flies through the air and into him. We make for the rear, pull wire cradles into the trenches, and leaves bomb behind us with the strings pulled, which ensures us a fiery retreat. The machine guns are already firing from the next position. We have become wild beasts. We do not fight. We defend ourselves against annihilation. It is not against men that we fling our bombs. What do we know of men in this moment when death is hunting us down? Now, for the first time in three days, we can see his face. Now, for the first time in three days, we can oppose him. We feel a mad anger. No longer do we lie helpless, waiting on the scaffold. We can destroy and kill to save ourselves, to save ourselves and to be revenged. We crouch behind every corner, behind every barrier of barbed wire, and hurl heaps of explosives at the feet of the advancing enemy before we run. The blast of the hand grenades impinges powerfully on our arms and legs. Crouching like cats, we run on, overwhelmed by this wave that bears us along, that fills us with ferocity, turns us into thugs, into murderers, into God knows what devils. This wave that multiplies our strength with fear and madness and greed of life, seeking and fighting for nothing but our deliverance. If your own father came over with them, you would not hesitate to fling a bomb at him. The forward trenches have been abandoned. Are they still trenches? They are blown to pieces, annihilated. There are only broken bits of trenches, holes linked by cracks, nests of craters, that's all. But the enemy's casualties increase. They did not count on so much resistance. It is early noon. The sun blazes hotly. The sweat stings our eyes. We wipe it off on our sleeves, and often blood with it. At last we reach a trench that's in somewhat better condition. It's manned and ready for the counter-attack. It receives us. Our guns open full blast and cut off the enemy's attack. The lines behind us stop. They can advance no further. The attack is crushed by our artillery. We watch. 
The fire lifts a hundred yards and we break forward. Beside me, Lance Corporal has his arm torn off. He runs a few steps more while the blood spouts from his neck like a fountain. It does not come quite to hand-to-hand -hand fighting. They are driven back. We arrive once again at our shattered trench and pass on beyond it. Oh, this turning back again. We reach the shelter of the reserves and yearn to creep in and disappear. But again we must turn round and plunge again into the horror. If we were not automata at that moment, we would continue lying there, exhausted and without will. But we are swept forward again, powerless, madly savage and raging. We will kill. For they are still our mortal enemies, their rifles and bombs are aimed against us, and if we don't destroy them, they will destroy us. The brown earth, torn, blasted earth, with a greasy shine under the sun's rays, the earth is the battleground of this restless, groomy world of automatons. Our gasping is the scratching of a quill, our lips are dry, our heads are debauched with stupor. Thus we stagger forward, and into our pierced and shattered souls bores the torturing image of the brown earth with the greasy sun and the convulsed and dead soldiers who lie there. It can't be helped, who cry and clutch at our legs as we spring away over them. We have lost all feeling for one another. We can hardly control ourselves when our glance lights on the form of some other man. We are insensible dead men, who, through some trick, some dreadful magic, are still able to run and to kill. A young Frenchman lags behind. He is overtaken. He puts up his hands. In one he still holds his revolver. Does he mean to shoot or to give himself? A blow from a spade cleaves through his face. A second sees it and tries to run farther. A bayonet jabs into his back. He leaps into the air, his arms thrown wide, his mouth wide open, yelling. He staggers. In his back the bayonet quivers. A third throws away his rifle, cowers down with his hands before his eyes. He is left behind with a few other prisoners to carry off the wounded. Suddenly, in the pursuit, we reach the enemy line. We are so close on the heels of our retreating enemies that we reach it almost at the same time as they. In this way we suffer few casualties. A machine gun barks but is silenced with a bomb. Nevertheless, the couple of seconds has sufficed to give us five stomach wounds. With the butt of his rifle, Cat smashes to pulp the face of one of the unwounded machine gunners. We bayonet the others before they have time to get out their bombs. Then, thirstily, we drink the water they have for cooling the gun. Everywhere, wire cutters are snapping. Planks are thrown across the entanglements. We jump through the narrow entrances to the trenches. High strikes his spade into the neck of a gigantic Frenchman and throws the first hand grenade. We duck behind the breastwork for a few seconds. Then the straight bit of trench ahead of us is empty. The next throw whizzes obliquely over the corner and clears a passage. As we run past, we toss handfuls down into the dugouts. The earth shudders, it crashes, smokes, and groans. We stumble over slippery lumps of flesh over yielding bodies. I fall into an open belly on which lies a clean new officer's cap. The fight ceases. We lose touch with the enemy. We cannot stay here long, but must retire under cover of our artillery to our own position. No sooner do we know this than we dive into the nearest dugouts, with the utmost haste seize on whatever provisions we can see, especially the tins of corned beef and butter, before we clear out. We get back pretty well, 
There is no further attack by the enemy. We lie for an hour panting and resting before anyone speaks. We are so completely played out that, in spite of our great hunger, we do not think of the provisions. Then, gradually, we become something like men again. The corned beef over there is famous all along the front. Occasionally it has been the chief reason for a flying raid on our part, for our nourishment is generally very bad. We have a constant hunger. We bagged five tins altogether. The fellows over there are well looked after. They fare magnificently as against us, poor starving wretches with our turnip jam. They can get all the meat they want. High has scored a thin loaf of white French bread and stuck it in his belt buckle like a spade. It's a bit bloody in one corner, but that can be cut off. It's a good thing we have something decent to eat at last. We still have use for all of our strength. Enough to eat is just as valuable as a good dugout. It can save our lives. That is the reason we are so greedy for it. Chodden has captured two water bottles full of cognac. We pass them around. The evening benediction begins. Night comes. Out of the craters rise the mists. It looks as though the holes were full of ghostly secrets. The white vapor creeps painfully around before it ventures to steal away over the edge. Then long streaks stretch out from crater to crater. It's chilly. I am on sentry and stare into the darkness. My strength is exhausted as always after an attack, and so it's hard for me to be alone with my thoughts. They are not properly thoughts. They are memories which in my weakness haunt me and strangely move me. The parachute lights soar upward and I see a picture, a summer evening. I'm in the cathedral cloister, and look at the tall rose trees that bloom in the middle of the little cloister garden where the monks lie buried. Around the walls are the stone carvings of the Stations of the Cross. No one is there. A great quietness rules in the blossoming quadrangle. The sun lies warm on the heavy gray stones. I place my hand upon them and feel the warmth. At the right-hand corner the green cathedral spire ascends to the pale blue sky of evening. Between the glowing columns of the cloister is the cool darkness that only churches have, and I stand there and wonder whether, when I am twenty, I shall have experienced the bewildering emotions of love. The image is alarmingly near. It touches me before it dissolves in the light of the next star shell. I lay hold of my rifle to see that it's trim. The barrel's wet. I take it in my hands and rub off the moisture with my fingers. Between the meadows, behind our town, there stands a line of old poplars by a stream. They were visible from a great distance, and although they grew on one bank only, we called them the Poplar Avenue. Even as children we had a great love for them. They drew us vaguely thither. We played truant the whole day by them and listened to their rustling. We sat beneath them on the bank of the stream and let our feet hang in the bright, swift waters. The pure fragrance of the water and the melody of the wind and poplars held our fancies. We loved them dearly, and the image of those days still makes my heart pause in its beating. It is strange that all the memories that come have these two qualities. They're always completely calm. That is predominant in them. And even if they are not really calm, they become so. They are soundless apparitions that speak to me, with looks and gestures silently, without any word, and it is the alarm of their silence that forces me to lay hold of my sleeve and my rifle, lest it should abandon itself to the liberation and allurement in which my body would dilate and gently pass away into the still forces that lie behind these things.
they are quiet in this way because quietness is so unattainable for us now. At the front there's no quietness and the curse of the front reaches so far that we never pass beyond it. Even in the remote depots and rest areas, the droning and the muffling noise of shells is always in our ears. We are never so far off that it's no more to be heard. But these last few days, it's been unbearable. Their stillness is the reason why these memories of former times do not awaken desire so much as sorrow, a vast, inapprehensible melancholy. Once we had such desires, but they return not, they are past. They belong to another world that has gone from us. In the barracks, they call forth a rebellious, wild craving for their return. For then, they would still bound to us. We belonged to them and they to us, even though we were already absent from them. They appeared in the soldiers' songs, which we sang as we marched between the glow of the dawn and the black silhouettes of the forest to drill on the moor. They were a powerful remembrance that was in us and came from us. But here, in the trenches, they are completely lost to us. They arise no more. We are dead, and they stand remote on the horizon. They are a mysterious reflection, an apparition that haunts us, that we fear and love without hope. They are strong, and our desire is strong, but they are unattainable, and we know it. And even if these scenes of our youth were given back to us, we would hardly know what to do. The tender secret influence that passed from them into us could not rise again. We might be amongst them and move in them. We might remember and love them and be stirred by the sight of them. But it would be like gazing at a photograph of a dead comrade. Those are his features. It is his face. And the days we spent together take on a mournful life in the memory. But the man himself, it is not. We could never regain the old intimacy with those scenes. It was not any recognition of their beauty and their significance that attracted us, but the communion, the feeling of a comradeship with the things and events of our existence, which cut us off and made the world of our parents a thing incomprehensible to us. For then we surrendered ourselves to events and were lost in them, and the least little thing was enough to carry us down the stream of eternity. Perhaps it was only the privilege of our youth but as yet we recognized no limits and saw nowhere an end. We had that thrill of expectation in the blood which united us with the course of our days. Today we would pass through the scenes of our youth like travelers. We are burnt up by the hard facts. Like tradesmen we understand distinctions, and like butchers necessities. We are no longer untroubled. We are indifferent. We might exist there, but should we really live there? We are forlorn like children, and experienced like old men. We are crude and sorrowful and superficial. I believe we are lost. My hands grow cold and my flesh creeps, and yet the night is warm. Only the mist is cold, this mysterious mist that trails over the dead and sucks from them their last creeping life. By morning they will be pale and green, and their blood congealed and black. Still the parachute rockets shoot up and cast their pitiless light over the stony landscape, which is full of craters and frozen lights like a moon. The blood beneath my skin brings fear and restlessness to my thoughts. They become feeble and tremble. They want warmth and life. They cannot persist without solace, without illusion. 
they are disordered before the naked picture of despair. I hear the rattle of the mess tins and immediately feel a strong desire for warm food. It would do me good and comfort me. Painfully, I force myself to wait until I am relieved. Then I go into the dugout and find a mug of barley. It is cooked in fat and tastes good. I eat it slowly. I remain quiet, though the others are in a better mood, for the shelling has died down. The days go by, and the incredible hours follow one another as a matter of course. Attacks alternate with counterattacks, and slowly the dead pile up in the field of craters between the trenches. We are able to bring in most of the wounded that do not lie too far off, but many have long to wait, and we listen to them dying. For one of them we search for two days. He must be lying on his belly and unable to turn over, otherwise it's hard to understand why we cannot find him, for it's only when a man has his mouth close to the ground that it's impossible to gauge the direction of his cry. He must have been badly hit, one of those nasty wounds, neither so severe that they exhaust the body at once and a man dreams on in a half-swoon, nor so light that a man endures the pain in the hope of becoming well again. Cat thinks he is either a broken pelvis or a shot through the spine. His chest cannot have been injured, otherwise he would not have the strength to cry out, and if it were any other kind of wound, it would be possible to see him moving. He grows gradually hoarser. The voice is so strangely pitched that it seems to be everywhere. The first night, some of our fellows go out three times to look for him, but when they think they have located him and crawl across, next time they hear his voice, it seems to come from somewhere else altogether. We search in vain until dawn. We scrutinize the field all day with glasses, but discover nothing. On the second day, the calls are fainter. That will be because his lips and mouth have become dry. Our company commander has promised next turn of leave with three days extra to anyone who finds him. That is a powerful inducement, but we would do all that's possible without that, for his cry is terrible. Cat and Crop even go out in the afternoon, and Albert gets a lobe of his ear shot off in consequence. It's to no purpose they come back without him. It's easy to understand what he cries. At first he called out only for help. The second night he must have had some delirium. He talked with his wife and children. We often detected the name Elise. Today he merely weeps. By evening his voice dwindles to a croaking, but it persists through the whole night. We hear it so distinctly because the wind blows toward our line. In the morning, when we suppose he must already have long gone to his rest, there comes across to us one last gurgling rattle. The days are hot and the dead lie unburied. We cannot fetch them all in. If we did, we should not know what to do with them. The shells will bury them. Many have their bellies swollen up like balloons. They hiss, belch, and make movements. The gases in them make noises. The sky is blue and without clouds. In the evening it grows sultry, and the heat rises from the earth. When the wind blows toward us it brings the smell of blood, which is heavy and sweet. This deathly exhalation from the shell holes seems to be a mixture of chloroform and putrefaction and fills us with nausea and retching. The nights become quiet, and the hunt for copper driving bands in the silken parachutes of the French star shells begins. Why the driving bands are so desirable, no one knows exactly. The collectors merely assert that they are valuable. 
Some have collected so many that they will stoop under the weight of them when they go back. But High at least gives a reason. He intends to give them to his girlfriend to supplement her garters. At this the Frisians explode with mirth. They slap their knees. By Jove, though he's a wit, High is. He's got brains. Chodden especially can hardly contain himself. He takes the largest of the rings in his hands and every now and then puts his leg through it to show how much slack there is. Hi, man, she must have legs like legs. His thoughts mount somewhere higher. And a behind, too, she must have like, like an elephant. He cannot get over it. I wish I could play hot hand with her once. My hat. High beams, proud that his girl should receive so much appreciation. She's a nice bit, he says with self-satisfaction. The parachutes are turned to more practical uses. According to the size of the bust, three or perhaps four will make a blouse. Crop and I use them as handkerchiefs. The others send them home. If the women could see at what risk these bits of rag are often obtained, they would be horrified. Cat surprises Chodden, endeavoring with perfect equanimity to knock the driving band off of a dud. If anyone else had tried it, the thing would have exploded, but Chodden always has his luck with him. One morning, two butterflies played in front of our trench. They are brimstone butterflies with red spots on their yellow wings. What can they be looking for here? There's not a plant nor a flower for miles. They settle on the teeth of a skull. The birds, too, are just as carefree. They have long since accustomed themselves to the war. Every morning larks ascend from no man's land. A year ago we watched them nesting. The young ones grew up, too. We have a spell from the rats in the trench. They are in no man's land. We know what for. They grow fat. When we see one, we have a crack at it. At night we hear again the rolling behind the enemy lines. All day we have the normal shelling, so that we are able to repair the trenches. There is always plenty of amusement, the airmen see to that. There are countless fights for us to watch every day. Battle planes don't trouble us, but the observation planes we hate like the plague. They put the artillery on to us. A few minutes after they appear, shrapnel and high explosive begin to drop on us. We lose eleven men one day that way, and five of them stretcher bearers. Two are smashed so that Chodden remarks you could scrape them off the wall of the trench with a spoon and bury them in a mess tin. Another has the lower part of his body and legs torn off. Dead, his chest leans against the side of the trench. His face is lemon yellow. In his beard still burns a cigarette. It glows until it dies out on his lips. We put the dead in a large shell hole. So far there are three layers, one on top of the other. Suddenly, the shelling begins to pound again. Soon we are sitting up once more with the rigid tenseness of blank anticipation. Attack, counterattack, charge, repulse, these are words. But what things they signify. We have lost a good many men, mostly recruits. Reinforcements have again been sent up to our sector. They are one of the new regiments, composed almost entirely of young fellows just called up. They have had hardly any training and are sent into the field with only a theoretical knowledge. They do know what a hand grenade is, it's true, but they have very little idea of cover, and what is most important of all, they have no eye for it. A fold in the ground has to be quite 18 inches high before they can see it. Although we need reinforcement, the recruits give us almost more trouble than they are worth. 
They are helpless in this grim fighting area. They fall like flies. Modern trench warfare demands knowledge and experience. A man must have a feeling for the contours of the ground, an ear for the sound and character of the shells, must be able to decide beforehand where they will drop, how they will burst, and how to shelter from them. The young recruits, of course, know nothing of these things. They get killed simply because they can hardly tell shrapnel from high explosive. They are mown down because they are listening anxiously to the war of the big coal boxes falling in the rear, and miss the light piping whistle of the low-spreading daisy cutters. They flock together like sheep instead of scattering, and even the wounded are shot down like hares by the airmen. Their pale turnip faces, their pitiful clenched hands, the fine courage of these poor devils, the desperate charges and attacks made by these poor, brave wretches, who are so terrified that they dare not cry out loudly, but with battered chests, with torn bellies, arms and legs only whimper softly for their mothers, and cease as soon as one looks at them. Their sharp, downy, dead faces have the awful expressionlessness of dead children. It brings a lump to the throat to see how they go over and run and fall. A man would like to spank them, they're so stupid, and to take them by the arm and lead them away from here where they have no business to be. They wear grey coats and trousers and boots, but for most of them the uniform is far too big. It hangs on their limbs, their shoulders are too narrow, their bodies too slight, no uniform was ever made to these childish measurements. Between five and ten recruits fall to every old hand. A surprise gas attack carries off a lot of them. They have not yet learned what to do. We found one dugout full of them, with blue heads and black lips. Some of them, in a shell hole, took off their masks too soon. They did not know that the gas lies longest in the hollows. When they saw others on top without masks, they pulled theirs off too and swallowed enough to scorch their lungs. Their condition is hopeless. They choke to death with hemorrhages and suffocation. In one part of the trench, I suddenly run into Himmelstos. We dive into the same dugout, breathless, we are all lying one beside another waiting for the charge. When we run out again, although I'm very excited, I suddenly think, where's Himmelstos? Quickly, I jump back into the dugout and find him in a small scratch, lying in a corner pretending to be wounded. His face looks sullen, he is in a panic, he is new to it too, but it makes me mad that the young recruit should be out there and he here. Get out, I spit. He does not stir, his lips quiver, his mustache twitches. Out, I repeat. He draws up his legs, crouches back against the walls and shows us teeth like a cur. I seize him by the arm and try to pull him. He barks. That is too much for me. I grab him by the neck and shake him like a sack. His head jerks from side to side. You lump, you will get out, you hound, you skunk. Sneak out of it, would you? His eyes become glassy. I knock his head against the wall. You cow! I kick him in the ribs. You swine! I push him forward to the door and shove him out head first. Another wave of our attack has come up. A lieutenant is with them. He sees us and yells, Forward! Forward! Join in! Follow! and the word of command does what all my banging could not. Himmelstos hears the order, looks round him as if wakened, and follows on. I come after and watch him go over. Once more he is the smart Himmelstos of the parade ground. He has even outstripped the lieutenant and is far ahead. Bombardment, barrage, curtain fire, mines, gas, tanks, machine guns, hand grenades, words, words. But they hold the horror of the world.
Our faces are encrusted. Our thoughts are devastated. We are weary to death. When the attack comes, we shall have to strike many of the men with our fists to waken them, to make them come with us. Our eyes are burnt, our hands torn, our knees bleed, our elbows raw. How long has it been? Weeks, months, years? Only days. We see time pass in the colorless faces of the dying. We cram food into us, we run, we throw, we shoot, we kill, we lie about, we are feeble and spent, and nothing supports us but the knowledge that there are still feebler, still more spent, still more helpless ones there who, with staring eyes, look upon us as gods that escape death many times. In the few hours of rest we teach them. There, see that waggle top? That's a mortar coming. Keep down, it'll go clean over. But if it comes this way, then run for it. You can run from a mortar. We sharpen their ears to the malicious, hardly audible buzz of the smaller shells that are not easily distinguishable. They must pick them out from the general din by their insect-like hum. We explain to them that these are far more dangerous than the big ones that can be heard along beforehand. We show them how to take cover from aircraft, how to simulate a dead man when one's overrun in an attack, how to time hand grenades so that they explode a half second before hitting the ground. We teach them to fling themselves into holes as quick as lightning before the shells with instantaneous fuses. We show them how to clean up a trench with a handful of bombs. We explain the difference between the fuse length of the enemy bombs and our own. We put them wise to the sound of gas shells show them all the tricks that can save them from death. They listen, they are docile, but when it begins again in their excitement, they do everything wrong. High Westus drags off with a great wound in his back through which the lung pulses at every breath. I can only press his hand. It's all up, Paul, he groans and bites his arm because of the pain. We see men living with their skulls blown open. We see soldiers run with their two feet cut off. They stagger on their splintered stumps into the next shell hole. A lance corporal crawls a mile and a half on his hands, dragging his smashed knee after him. Another goes to the dressing station, and over his clasped hands bulge his intestines. We see men without mouths, without jaws, without faces. We find one man who has held the artery of his arm in his teeth for two hours in order not to bleed to death. The sun goes down, night comes, the shells whine, life is at an end. Still, the little piece of convulsed earth in which we lie is held. We have yielded no more than a few hundred yards of it as a prize to the enemy, but on every yard there lies a dead man. We have just been relieved. The wheels roll beneath us. We stand dully, and when the call, mind, wire, comes, we bend our knees. It was summer when we came up. The trees were still green. Now it's autumn, and the night is gray and wet. The lorries stop. We climb out, a confused heap, a remnant of many names. On either side stand people, dark, calling out the numbers of the brigades, the battalions. And at each call, a little group separates itself off, a small handful of dirty, pallid soldiers, a dreadfully small handful, a dreadfully small remnant. Now someone is calling the number of our company. It is, yes, the company commander. He has come through then. His arm is in a sling. We go over to him, and I recognize Cat and Albert. We stand together, lean against each other, and look at one another. And we hear our company called again 
and again. He will call a long time. They do not hear him in the hospitals and shell holes. Once again, second company, and then, more softly, nobody else second company? He is silent, and then huskily he says, Is that all? And gives the order. Number. The morning is gray. It was still summer when we came up. And we were one hundred and fifty strong. Now we freeze. It is autumn. The leaves rustle. The voices flutter out warily. One, two, three, four, and cease at thirty-two. And there is a long silence before the voice asks, Anyone else? And waits, and then says softly, In squads? And then breaks off, and is only able to finish, Second company, with difficulty. Second company, march easy. A line, a short line, trudges off into the morning. Thirty-two men. And finally, to finish up, let's return to a little bit of poetry from the Allied side of the lines. When You See Millions of the Mouthless Dead by Charles Hamilton Sorley when you see millions of the mouthless dead across your dreams in pale battalions go, say not soft things, as other men have said, that you'll remember, for you need not so. Give them not praise, for, death, how should they know, it is not curses heaped on each gashed head, nor tears. Their blind eyes see not your tears flow, nor honor. It is easy to be dead. Say only this, they are dead. Then add thereto, yet many a better one has died before. Then, scanning all the o'ercrowded mass, should you perceive one face that you loved heretofore, it is a spook. None wears the face you knew. Great death has made all his forevermore. Charles Hamilton Sorley was killed in combat at the Battle of Luce on October 13, 1915. The handwritten original of this poem was found in his kit. I Have a Rendezvous with Death by Alan Seeger I have a rendezvous with death at some disputed barricade, when spring comes back with rustling shade and apple blossoms fill the air. I have a rendezvous with death when spring brings back blue days and fair. It may be he shall take my hand and lead me into his dark land and close my eyes and quench my breath. It may be I shall pass him still. I have a rendezvous with death on some scarred slope of battered hill when spring comes round again this year and the first meadow flowers appear. God knows twere better to be deep pillowed in the sink and scented down where love throbs out in blissful sleep pulse nigh to pulse and breath to breath where hushed awakenings are dear but i've a rendezvous with death at midnight in some flaming town when spring trips north again this year and i to my pledged word am true i shall not fail that rendezvous alan seeger an american fighting in the french foreign legion fell in combat on the fourth of july nineteen sixteen he was the uncle of the great American folk singer and anti-war activist Pete Seeger. Dead Man's Dump by Isaac Rosenberg The plunging limbers over the shattered track 
racketed with their rusty freight, stuck out like many crowns of thorns, and the rusty stakes like scepters old to stay the flood of brutish men upon our brothers dear. The wheels lurched over sprawled dead, but pained them not, though their bones crunched, their shut mouths made no moan. They lie there, huddled, friend and foeman, man born of man and born of woman, and shells go crying over them, from night till night and now. Earth has waited for them, all the time of their growth, fretting for their decay. Now she has them at last, in the strength of their strength, suspended, stopped, and held. What fierce imaginings their dark souls lit! Earth, have they gone into you? Somewhere they must have gone, and flung on your hard back is their soul's sack, emptied of god-ancestral essences. Who hurled them out? Who hurled? None saw their spirit's shadow shake the grass, or stood aside for the half-used life to pass out of those doomed nostrils and the doomed mouths, when the swift iron-burning bee drained the wild honey of their youth. What of us who, flung on the shrieking pyre, walk, our usual thoughts untouched, our lucky limbs as on ichor fed, immortal seeming ever? Perhaps when the flames beat loud on us, a fear may choke in our veins, and the startled blood may stop. The air is loud with death. The dark air spurts with fire. The explosions ceaseless are. Timelessly now, some minutes pass, those dead strode time with vigorous life till the shrapnel called an end. But not to all. In bleeding pangs, some born on stretchers dreamed of home, dear things war-blotted from their hearts. Maniac earth, howling and flying, your bowels seared by the jagged fire, the iron love, the impetuous storm of savage love. Dark earth, dark heavens, swinging in chemic smoke, what dead are born when you kiss each soundless soul with lightning and thunder from your mind heart? with each man's self dug and his blind fingers loosed. A man's brain splattered on a stretcher-bearer's face. His shook shoulders slipped their load, but when they bent to look again, the drowning soul was sunk too deep for human tenderness. They left this dead with the older dead, stretched at the crossroads. Burnt black by strange decay, their sinister faces lie, the lid over each eye, the grass and colored clay, more motion have than they, joined to the great sunk silences. Here is one not long dead. His dark hearing caught our far wheels, and the choked soul stretched weak hands to reach the living word the far wheels said. The blood-dazed intelligence beating for light, crying through the suspense of the far torturing wheels, swift for the end to break or the wheels to break, cried as the tide of the world broke over his sight. Will they come? Will they ever come? Even as the mixed hoofs of the mules, the quivering-bellied mules, and the rushing wheels all mixed with his tortured, upturned sight, so we crashed round the bend, we heard his weak scream, we heard his very last sound, and our wheels grazed his dead face. Isaac Rosenberg was killed in action on April 1st, 1918.
Dulce et Decorum Est by Wilfred Owen Bent double like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep, many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod, all went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf to the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. Gas! Gas! Quick, boys! An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time, but someone still was yelling out and stumbling, and floundering like a man in fire or lime, dim through the misty panes in thick green light, as under a green sea I saw him drowning. In all my dreams before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothered dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil's sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory the old lie. Dulce et decorum est pro patria mori. Translation, sweet and fitting it is to die for your country. Wilfred Owen died in combat on the Western Front on November 4, 1918, exactly one week before the war ended, and at a time when its outcome was no longer in any doubt.